0: Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's guide to U.S. real estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, guys, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's guide to U.S. real estate. From Los Angeles, I'm Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you on the show. I want to take a few seconds to thank all my loyal listeners out there who tune in every week. Keep it up and help spread the word. You're all a bunch of champions for the continued loyalty and commitment. Well done. Today's show is part two of a three-part series dedicated to understanding the A to Z of real estate syndication. We're discussing some absolute cracking topics from just the basic understanding of what syndication is to how it benefits international investors, particularly when it comes to breaking into the US market. And in part three, we'll be covering all the legal aspects of real estate syndication. I'm very, very excited to be bringing you this series as this is what my business does on a daily basis. We syndicate. We pool investors' money together so we can buy large multifamily apartment communities. Today in part two, we will be focusing on how syndication can be used to scale your real estate business. And the entrepreneur in the hot seat to give us all the cracking insider information is John Cohen. G'day, John. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Reed. Thanks for having me.
0: So John is another successful entrepreneur who's broken out of the rat race to become a full-time investor. John is the founder of JC Property Group and has been investing in real estate since 2010. In 2014, he switched his focus to multifamily asset class, and in 2015, he closed on a total of 152 units and put a further 290 units under contract, which are scheduled to close in early 2015. Total value of the portfolio worth over $2.8 million. That's pretty incredible stuff. (laughs) But John, before we dive into all the juicy stuff, can you tell us something that most people might not know about you, unrelated to being a successful realtor? Real estate entrepreneur.
1: Um. Besides the real estate, my passion was baseball. I played baseball in college. Played one year in the Dominican Republic, six months in the Dominican Republic. Wow. And uh, that's what I wanted to do. I had my life hell bent on that. I had a couple injuries and realized that I was getting a little bit older, and it was time to uh, get a job and 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 figure it out. So, uh, and th- that's my passion. I'm a huge Yankee fan, and. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what I like to do when I'm not uh when I'm not working.
0: Right. And, and so tell me a little bit, you went to the Dominican Republic to try and crack like the pros?
1: Yeah, I played down there. A Philadelphia Phillies uh scout brought down about thirty thirty, thirty-five people. Uh actually it might have been more than that. Might have been about forty people and, and set up two teams down there. And we played you know, a good amount of games down there for a little while and then uh got hurt, had a great time down there. The the teams he brought down there were actually Two of the more successful groups, uh, you know, this was 10 years ago, maybe right. even longer than that. Right, right. Uh, up until that point, they were two of the more successful groups that have gone down there and uh, played really well. And then all good things come to an end. And, uh, <laughs> like I said, I had a couple injuries, uh, continued playing when I got back home. I still play baseball to date in a 25 and older league, but, uh, yeah, played down there, which was awesome. I got to experience some really cool things. You know, obviously going down there not knowing uh, the language was a barrier, but you get to learn it because you know I took Spanish in high school, and then you start speaking, and you know you start learning the lingo. But uh, it was a fun. It was a really fun trip. Fantastic,
0: mate! That is uh, well done. By the way, I should say thanks. That's that's, uh, that's not a small achievement to go for on a scouting mission. Essentially, to to um, you said Puerto Rico, right? Uh, Dominican, Republic. Dominican, Dominican Republic sorry excuse my language <laughs> no, no worries. <laughs> so John with that being said can you give us a more in-depth look at your background and what motivated you to get into real estate and, and eventually leave your day job to become a full-time investor this doesn't just happen overnight and I like to get people on the show and understand their why factor so tell us a little bit about your why factor and, and how it's got you to where you are today
1: I think that that's an excellent question. Um and I think it's something, you know, the why is the biggest part of this business because the you know, to wake up every day and do this, you don't get paid until you do something. So if you don't have a good why, we both know that, you know, making this a full-time job could be difficult, but I after I graduated college uh and after after that took place, I basically got out of school and my mom gave me two choices. She said, "Get a job or get the blank out of the house." <laughs> and I picked get a job because I didn't want to get thrown out of my house. So I actually ended up going into finance. I was a stockbroker, licensed Series 7, Series 63. And I did that for about three years. Um, And while I was there, that's when I started investing in tax deeds. Uh, I bought a single family house by my brother's college for him. Also as a rental property as my, you know, one of the first deals I did. And I just realized that I, I did not like, selling stocks it wasn't you know i got a job interview at morgan stanley uh went through a 13 interview process finally got the job and the day that i got hired that the next day i came into work and i quit because (laughs) i just didn't want to do that for the for the next 50 years of my life i just didn't want to sit at a desk for you know 15 hours a day going down that path so while i was there i was learning a lot about real estate and investing I, i started investing on my own and uh Quit my job. Called my mother once again and said, uh, "My quit my job." She called me crazy because it was a very good salary. <laughs> she said, "What are you going to do?" And I said, "I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to go do some real estate." And then she's like, "Yep, you're crazy. That's fine. I support you, but what are you going to sell? What are, you know, are you going to do it? House- you know, what are you going to do?" Right. I was like, "Well, I, I don't want to be an agent. I want to be, a, I want to be an investor." And she's right. like, "Okay, well, now you're completely crazy, but good luck. You know, I support you, but don't leave your job and." What I wanted to do from the beginning was hybrid real estate investment with me being a stockbroker. So basically raising money and putting it into real estate deals. But in 2010, you know, eleven, when I stopped doing that, really 2010, it was illegal. You really couldn't go out there and cold call and, and raise money from private people. You're breaking all types of SEC laws and blue sky laws and all that good stuff. So I said, okay, I can't do that. I got to just use the money I have and buy property. So right. went out, did what I had to do and realized uh, this is my why. You know, I, I sat down with a very good buddy of mine and he explained to me, his name is Chris Erso. Uh, he's a huge multifamily guy. Um, without him, I wouldn't be where I am today. But he basically explained to me, if you keep going down that single family road, this is what you're going to have to do to be where you want to take your business. And the other determining factor and the reason why I wake up every day is that growing up, I had a great life. My parents gave me everything that I could possibly want and more. And because of that, I thought real estate would give me the freedom and flexibility to do everything in my power. So as they get older, as my brother gets older, as my family gets older, I wanted to be able to support them the way they supported me. So my why after speaking to my buddy Chris – and realizing what kind of company I wanted and the incomes that that I wanted to generate, I had to make a bigger step into a bigger game, which was multifamily. And my why is simply, you know, supporting my family. You know, when I get married, when I have kids, my mother, my father, my cousins, my brother, I, I want to be able to, if they need something or they have, you know, hey, you want to do this? I want to be able to pay for their vacations. I want to be able to take them away. I want them to enjoy life the same way I got to enjoy it when I was a kid. And realize to do that. I'm going to have to go bigger and 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 do more. And so my, my why is basically my family and giving them the life as they get older that they gave me when I was a kid.
0: Fantastic. That's that's incredible, mate. And I love you know family is so important and, and different being from the west or the western countries Sometimes family isn't as a priority and it's not until you get older that you realize how important family is. And I know my family back in Australia is very, very important to me. So if they're listening, uh, hi guys, and you're very important to me. (laughs) So John, in the intro, I mentioned that you only started focusing on multifamily assets in 2014. And now you have a total of 152 units and potentially closing on another 299. That's, that's nuts how quickly you've grown. And I know you're the right guy to get on the show to be talking about how you use syndication to scale your business. So, John, in part one, I went over a little bit of the syndication basics and how syndicators can use other people's money or OPM to buy larger deals and how it benefits both investors investors. And the syndicators, as both parties can form you know a partnership, and they make money together and that 's all well and good in theory, but you know the reason you 're on the show is that you 're an example of syndication in action, so tell me the thought process behind you wanting to use other people 's money to help you grow your real estate business. that just doesn 't just come to you you know you have to get to a point where you 're saying, "I see the value, I need to take it to the next level
1: uh, absolutely, and as I said. You know my my buddy Chris and I, I give him a lot of credit because you know the way that he explained it to me and it's the easiest way that it, it painted a picture. It basically said, "What kind of company do you want to have?" And my, my vision from coming from a finance background was, you know, I, I wanted a hedge fund. I, I I didn't want to own a fifty unit building you know, for myself and have it as a passive investment, you know, I-, I wanted to grow a business. So he basically said, and this is what his mentor said 10 years ago or five years ago, you know, maybe six years ago. Now, I don't know the exact date, mm. but he said, do you have a pen? Chris said, yes. He said, you know, what's the average price of your houses? Cause he was flipping houses. He was flipping right. uh single family houses in about four markets. He said $50,000. So he said, write 50000 on the on a piece of paper. How big do you want your company? And Chris said, I want a $200 million. I want a $100 million company. Right. So he said, write 2000 underneath that.
0: Mm-hmm. He said,
1: do the math. 50 times 2000 is is $100 million. And he said, uh-oh, <laughs> I'm going to have to own 2,000 single-family houses. Yeah. It's just most likely not possible. There are people that do it, and I'm not going to say it's not the right way. But the his advisor said, what happens if you're able to get 2,000 units In more centralized locations, so you could have 200 unit complex, 50 unit, whatever it may be. He said, Okay, so you don't need 50, you don't need 2,000 deals, maybe you only need 20 deals at 100 units a pop. So he explained that to me, and before he explained that to me, he said, You know, what you know, how big do you want your business to be? And I said, Me, I'm looking to do, I want to own a hundred million dollar company. So I was right in this exactly what he envisioned himself five years prior. So in 2014, when I met him, he basically told me that story. And I realized to get to that point, I'm going to have to do a whole hell of a lot more than five, 10 tax deed properties here and there. And it it just wasn't going to happen. So inevitably it, it led me to the point where I said, okay, I have to go bigger. And that's what led me to, where i am today that answered
0: right. the question yeah no that, that's 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 perfect it's that's a very very good analogy you know you're right i i flip a few houses on the side as well with with my multi-families and the amount of time and effort i spend on flipping a one single a single family property is just the same or maybe even more than pulling together a syndication because you know i'm dealing with contractors and yada 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 it's it's the economy of scale isn't there i can do the same amount of work on 50 units on a hundred units as in terms of my time as I can on one single family property. So I think that's very, very important to to understand the why behind syndication is that you're not only using other people's money to buy larger deals, you're using your own time to scale that to, to an effect. You know, you're not, you're focusing on more units to get, and that's just one deal where one deal in single family is just a three bedroom, two bathroom house. So
1: <laughs> exactly. I think you just hit the nail on the head. And, and the other thing that, I'm not going to say people don't understand, but as you mentioned, you know, doing a single family flip is, I'm not going to say it ends up being more work, but with the bigger stuff comes a lot better support. You have better management. You just have a better team surrounding you, which makes it, I don't want to use the word easier because I don't think that's fair to say it's easier. It just, you just have better systems in place. And I think that that's a very common mistake. People say, well, I'm going to start small and then I'm going to go big when you don't necessarily have to. So I think you touched on it spot on.
0: That, that's exactly right. You don't, I, I know, I know John knew a little, a, a little bit from my mentor, Joe Fairless and myself, you know, people, when I tell people my story, they're like, wow, you only had a couple of duplexes. And then all of a sudden you went to 250 units. It's like, like and they're like that doesn't just happen. And It's like well, it can just happen if you understand, as you just said, John, the processes and the systems, and understanding it's just economy of scale, whether it, the, the numerical factor is is larger. But once you wrap your head around syndication and how to use other people's money, so you you know you both benefit, and you know it's a, it's a, it's a partnership. I think that's very important to not be lost on anyone. That's a very key underlying factor. And in part one, I talk a little bit about how. Every single successful business around the world uses other people's money. No one just has a ton of cash that they can go out and buy whatever they want. They need to pull it together and and grow as a partnership. So
1: yeah. absolutely. And what, what I tell people all the time when it comes to the syndication side, you got to remember in the end, you're not asking for money. You're offering an opportunity. Because a lot of people, yes. you know, if you just go out and say, "Hey, give me money for this," or "Let me get," you know it doesn't come off as listen, you know, there's this opportunity that I'm presenting. If it fits what you're looking for, excellent. If not, and it's not the right deal, no harm, no foul. But, you know, you gotta look at it as an offering, an opportunity as opposed to asking for money. Because you're right, you know, the best businesses out there, they don't just write checks out of their pocket. They they're borrowing money from somebody. And some facets, so. right?
0: Exactly, and that you hit the nail on the head just then, and, and that's right. And it's not necessary. It, it, you're offering an, an investment opportunity, and it's not you're not begging people for money. You're saying this is an investment opportunity. We're both going to make money on this deal. Do you want to be involved? And it's a yes or no. And as you said, no harm, no foul. <laughs> so, with that being said, John, do you want to walk us through exactly how you use syndication investing to close your first hundred and fifty? total units. Um, that doesn't happen overnight. It, walk us through maybe your first deal and, you, and then your second deal and your third deal and how it's become progressively got easier for you. Hopefully it's got easier.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean, the first three you know deals, there was three deals in the 152. The, the first deal took some time. It took about about six months once I decided I was going to go this route to put together because there's, there's always two wheels that I'm spinning in my everyday business. One is finding deals and that is broker relationships, direct mail, cold calling, you know, property manager relationships. So those don't happen overnight. So the finding deals aspect is an always developing wheel that I'm spinning. So it's calling brokers, following up with brokers, going to markets, meeting brokers, taking them out to coffee, sending them a Starbucks gift card. It's just general relationship building principles. And it's not an overnight thing. You send out a direct mailer one time. Yes, does it happen where a guy calls you and sells his building? It does, and I wouldn't be lying if I said it doesn't, but for the most part, it's not the one mailer that they get. It's going to be three, four, five, and that's my first deal that I put under contract uh, and closed on was a direct mail campaign that ended up going to the manager of the building who ended up basically saying, listen, my owner's a he's not a good person. He doesn't give me enough money. The property's a mess. You know, would you want to buy this? And I said, Yeah, I'd like to buy it. So he actually ended up setting up a call with the owner and he put it together. And then that's one way of finding a deal. The next two deals were one was uh, not off market, it was off market. It never went public because of the relationship that we had with the broker, where he said, Hey, this fits your model perfectly. You know, take a look at it. Closed. And then the other one was just a local wholesaler in the area say, Hey, I have a deal down in Atlanta. Do you guys want to take a look at it? And we said, Absolutely. Uh, And, you know, we, we bought it. So the first deal took six months to get. And then since then, you know, it's been pretty, you know, the relationships have strong and, you know, the brokers finally know that you can close. So they're like, okay, this guy can close. He's a guy that I want to do business with. And you know, the commercial real estate sector in the multifamily sector, although a big sector, it's a small community, you know, there are the top buyers there are, you know, and the brokers know that they see the people doing business. So, the more you do what you say you're going to do, the higher you go up there, Raider. I also know this because I was a commercial broker for Marcus and Milojet. So I, I know what it's like on the other side of the coin. So the two wheels, as I said before, that are always spinning are the finding deals and that's relationship building. And then the other side is finding money and that's networking you know that's the private money side—the raising money, friends, family, coworkers, however that is. So those are two things that are always spinning: getting out there, networking, and then getting out there and building relationships with not only brokers and and the deal finding side, but you got to build relationships with your your potential investors because without them, the, the deals don't happen. Because you, you know I'm not going to say you need them, but you do need them unless you have an infinite supply of money. But as we've spoke about earlier, you know money, it runs out, you know, and, and that's why I wanted to go bigger because I was not running out of money, but the smaller deals weren't making sense. And I I didn't have $20 million that I could just write checks for. So I had to go out, use my resume, build relationships with investors and potential investors and future investors and uh, leverage my talent and my skill to find deals with the investors. So they said, okay, here's a good deal. I want to be a part of it.
0: Fantastic. And I, you took the words right out of my mouth, and I use those exact same words that you use in terms of two different wheels are spinning. One wheel and is investors; the other wheel is deals. And um, if you can try and find someone who's better, who has better broker relationships, I've I've been lucky enough to to partner with someone who who does have some pretty good broker relationships, and I can focus more on the the the, the raising capital side. But yeah, you're right; it's it's a full time process, just looking like finding brokers. And then once you've found the brokers, they've got to send you those deals and, and and you hit the nail on the head. Nothing happens until you close on your first deal. You're not going to be taken seriously until you get that first one under contract and you close. And, and it sounds like you did a direct mailer, which is, you know we could have a whole show about direct mailers for multifamily assets because direct mailers are, are a big thing for single families, but maybe not as much for Multifamilies, but but well done. I just wanted to ask quickly: whereabouts are you investing? You said Lancer. Is that is that all the places that you're investing?
1: Um, Midwest and Southeast. Uh, so I own properties in Alabama, Atlanta, and or Alabama, Georgia, and Ohio. And I've sort of focused this year more on the Southeast, so the South Carolinas and North Carolinas, as well as Ohio, because I have really good really good relationships with uh, brokers and manager property managers up there. So. In a nutshell, the southeast and the Midwest definitely trying to stay in the right now the 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 South Carolina and North Carolina area are two areas that I really like
0: and, and why do you really like those areas so
1: much? population growth job growth the one the one tip that I can give anyone in multifamily when I speak to them if there's one piece of advice that anyone could take getting into multifamily it's jobs 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 you know where there are jobs, people will come, and where people come to, they need a place to live. So uh the job growth in the areas, you know, I'm in the, the, the Greenville MSA uh down in Charleston as well as like the Durham Raleigh area are three areas that I really like. The job growth has been great, the population growth is great, um a lot of good employers are coming are moving there. So that that's the major reason behind those two uh the reasons why I like those markets. Fantastic. And you hit Another we keep saying nail on the head, the nail on the <laughs> head,
0: but it's, it is it's true, and that is having diversification in employment. I think that's very very important, particularly in the sort of tier two cities. You know, uh, you know, tier one being Los Angeles, New York, uh, San Francisco, stuff like that. Tier two being, you know, maybe Midwest, Houston. I don't I don't want to speak out of turn for someone, who, <laughs> but someone who, but, but maybe like Raleigh, North Carolina. Yeah, that Having the, the, the multi, not just one industry employer, so if it's not just oil or not just banking because that's too heavily reliant. You want to have a good spread of employment opportunities within any city. And I think that's very important to understand when you're looking at multifamily uh, as, a, as an investment vehicle to understand why you're looking at a certain area and you've got to have you know a, a checklist. Do you, do you want to walk us through some of your checklists that you, you've got to make sure that everything uh, is ticked off the list before you invest in that particular area?
1: Yeah, and I, I absolutely, I think that you know, Columbus is the per- one of the not the perfect, but it is a great example of that. There's no sector that owns more than eighteen percent of the market as far as diversification on jobs. So I have a checklist that I look for as far as you know what I want to see population at, and and it's not it's got to be growing at five percent a year because each market's a little bit different. But for the most part, yeah, you know, I have my due diligence checklist of a market prior to, you know, really starting to spend time in there. So, uh, you know, there are certain things that I look for. And once I check off everything, I say, okay, this is good. Now let's go build relationships and do what we have to do to, uh, you know, find the right, the right deals.
0: Right. Awesome. Awesome. And before we, just before you mentioned, I think one of the, the, (laughs) the second wheel, we've talked about the first wheel finding broker relationships. Once you've got that deal flow, once you've got the first couple of deals under your belt, things will start coming across your desk a lot easier. You know, you you had a very creative way of finding your first couple of deals, which is, you know, well done, but, <laughs> I should say. Thank but you. <laughs> but a big question I constantly get asked is how do you find investors? And in, in, I think the number one answer that I tell everyone is that you never stop finding investors. It's an ongoing process and it's a it's a struggle to find good investors to help you fund your deals because ultimately the goal for syndicators like you and I, John, is to have a constant flow of capital from investors, but that takes work. So how do you go about finding your investors now that you've done your first deal? Is it word of mouth? Are you doing any type of advertising? What are you doing to, to help grow your investor pool?
1: Yeah, so so the, the big thing for me, I'm, I'm a big believer in uh, networking. And I'm not – for the most part in our business, you're not going to meet somebody for the first time and then ask them for a half a million-dollar check. It, it happens, but they're not just going to be like, Oh, here you go. You know, it's time. So I, I like, you know, one thing that I, I like to set networking goals. I like to get out. I'm actually going to a networking event tonight at the Barclays center. Um, Fantastic. I like to do at least four networking events a month. I try and get out there and, and be someone that keeps going to these events so they can look at you as sort of an expert. Anytime there's a chance to speak, I try and get my name out there. So, you know, when you're, when you're speaking in front of a room, Whether you know everything about it or something, people look at you as the expert. So you want to get out there. You want to speak at any event that you can. I also like to hold wine and cheese parties, uh, you know, breakfasts where I invite a lot of my contacts and tell them to bring their friends. And I, you know, listen, bring, you know, bring five, 10 people and I'll put you in front of the room and you could tell everybody what you do. I like to go to as many events that I can like that. Also, a big thing is, you know, the people you already know get to them, tell them what you're doing, build an expert, you know, show them what you're doing, explain to them what you're doing. Uh, I send out a monthly email every month to my database just to keep them informed on what's going on, where the business is going, what are we looking for so they can get educated. So when a deal does come out, they're sort of already primed. So they don't ask the questions of why are you doing multifamily? It's already, they already know it because they've seen the information. So you know, I say get get to your database. Look through your phone book. Build an email database based on all your contacts. Get out to networking events, uh, and and never stop telling people what you do and introductions. You know, if your mom's boss ever spoke about real estate, you know, go get a cup of coffee with that guy. And then there are great forums online like Bigger Pockets, um, where you can get out and really brand yourself to what you want to brand yourself and. And and it it doesn't matter if it's a super experienced investor or a guy that's just getting started, you know, go out, get a cup of coffee, talk to everybody, meet people. You never know who's going to be introduced, what door is going to open. So I'm a big believer in, you know, I don't really do much advertising for investors, but I do, you know, marketing to my contacts uh, and I go to as many events and networking events that I can possibly get my hands on. Just so I can you know put myself out there, and I me personally, I try and take out thirty new people a month for either a coffee or a breakfast or a lunch, just so I could worst case scenario at the end of twelve months, I just added another three hundred and sixty new contacts to my database, which then I could you know hopefully work on and build up from there over over time
0: that's great, and I love you know what you said and I think without explicitly saying it, you're sort of investing in your personal brand you know because As you and I both know, people are not going to invest in your business the first time around when you haven't done a deal because you have no credibility, right? So what they're investing in is you as a professional, as a person who they want to do do business with a person that they like, a person that they trust. And that comes from, as you said, you know, taking people out to to coffee, sitting down with them, understanding their investing goals and criteria. But also you, you hit on which is a great point is, you know, having a networking event and, and getting up in front of people and continually speaking. I know one of my goals for two thousand and sixteen is to I want to get to twelve different speaking events or we'll be invited to twelve different speaking events. So that's that's one of my goals for two thousand and fifteen. Get in front of more people and hopefully this podcast gets in front of more people. So that' That's the whole point uh, of continuing to try to build your personal brand. I think that's very, very important for any aspiring syndicators out there to understand that. And that's, you know, having a website, having uh, professional, being professional looking. uh, And the the follow up question to that, John, is with your wine and cheese event, tell us a little bit about that. What What do you do at those events? How are you putting them on? Because I run a networking event here in here in L.A. I'm always loving to hear tips and advice from other fellow networkers.
1: Yeah, so basically, what I like to do, and there's there's a couple more that I have on the on the radar and on the, on the you know to do list this year. But you know, I like to you know my accountant that does my accounting, my lawyer that does all my legal work. You know, I like to have them invite some people they know that might be interested in real estate. Which I, I say I would like. That's what I have planned out for this year. But prior to that, you know, I invited some of my contacts. You know. And not just higher net worth guys, but people I know by basically saying, listen, I rented out a room. I'm going to do, uh, you know, I'm hosting a small event. They're going to be, you know, hopefully 20 to 40 people there, whatever it is. And, you know, I get some wine, some cheese and you make it super casual where you just, you know, it's more or less to get people together, you know, hosting event. And then at some point, you know, yeah, there is an agenda where I'll get up there, do a presentation on why multifamily and, and the benefits it has for an investor, so on and so forth. But it, it's just a different type of event. It also works when you have a deal currently and you're looking to raise money, get people there, but listen, I, you know, I know you've expressed some interest. You've answered some of my emails. You, you stayed very engaged. You know, I'm hosting a small get together with some of my past investors, some, you know, potential investors, the, the people I know, my team, you know, invite if you're managed local, you know, invite them if you're, or if they don't mind taking it, you know, I have an IRA lady I use. I try it you know, I try and invite her to the events just so there's more experts in the room. So, so the people in the room that are. Looking at the presentation and see what what you're doing so they could say, okay, this guy's really got a full team around him because the team is the most important part. You know, you can't do everything in this business by yourself. So having the right people around you that know what they are talking about and then can come to your events and speak on your behalf shows that, yeah, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, he's got his shit together. And, you know, (laughs) I I say that with no offense to anybody, but – your investors want to see okay, he has some deals. He has the right people in place and everybody's on the same page and everyone, everybody sees that. Okay. He's, you know, it's thorough. It's, you know, it's together. And, and the wine and cheese is just, you know, people like wine, people like cheese and they go together. And it's just another, you know, it's just like having like a morning event or a breakfast event or something like that. It's just, it's, and it's something different, you know, a lot of the events are the same. So that a buddy of mine did it, told me to do it. And, uh, I plan that? on doing it more this year.
0: <laughs> how, how often do you hold those events?
1: Last year I had about four events, okay. not including my raising money events, which, you know, sometimes you'll get a turnout of 20 people. Sometimes you have three people show up <laughs> and don't take offense to it. If you try and put together a wine and cheese party and your three cousins come and, and nobody else shows up because it's just, you know, it's the nature of the business. But sometimes those smaller events end up to be better because you could scrap the the corporate business approach to it. And sort of just, you know, pull the chairs together, sit in a circle and say, okay, you know, what do we want to talk about? You know, I don't have to do the whole, you know, the whole song and dance because, you know, there's three people here. Get really intimate. So I would say uh, not including the raising money events and stuff like that it was definitely you know i tried to I, I did at least it was at least four events last year
0: wow that's great i i'm constantly looking for new ideas and i think that's a, a wine and cheese event is is very, very good i'm going to take that i'm writing that down and i'm going to take that under my wing and try and do some here in la myself
1: awesome.
0: um john in part one i explained because this show is all about uh getting international investors to break into the United States. I explained how it's beneficial for international investors because they have all the upsides of owning real estate, but none of the downsides of, you know, finding deals, running the day-to-day operations and obtaining financing. So can, with that being said, can you walk us through exactly how you structure your deals with your investors and how they get a return on their investment?
1: Yeah. So uh, it's a real, you know, each deal is, is deal by deal specific. So, you know, the three deals that I have under management now and the three in contract all have different structures but we'll just take a generic one for instance so basically what i do is the total capital stack which is how much money that you need to do the deal which is including renovation closing costs reserves fees down payment all that good stuff uh, that's the money that i raise and as an investor whatever percentage you put in, that's your percentage of ownership in the deal. So let's just take easy numbers. Let's say I have to raise a million dollars and you put in a hundred thousand, you're a 10% owner in that deal. Now with each investor, there's, there's an equity split and profit split that I do with them. And that's generally anywhere between 70, 30 or 80, 20. So we'll use 80, 20 for argument's sake every. So let's say you're a hundred thousand dollar investor. You're a 10% owner. We're on an 80-20 split. Every dollar that comes out of that deal, 80 cents goes to my investor, 20 cents comes to me, and then your return is, is based on your 100000 So if the building brought in $100,000 and you own 10%, you're going to get $10,000, and then our split comes into effect. You know, You get eight, I get two, so you basically made 8% on your money. With no headaches. You don't have to deal with the manager. You don't have to deal with, you know, something goes wrong. I take, and that's why I get the 20%. It's not because I, I want to do the whole deal. It's because there's the day to day management of it, the, you know, the raising of the money, the finding of the deal. And that's what that 80 20 split en- encompasses. And then on top of that, generally there's a performance hurdle where if I perform better, the 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 split changes over a certain amount. So let's just say it's 15%. The first 15% are 8020 and then the 15 to 18% would be let's just call it 7030 or 6040. So it doesn't impact the investor's return. It just the better the deal performs, the better everybody does and the better, you know, the better the deal does, which makes, you know, everybody more money in the end. So that's really the the basic structuring of the deals and then obviously there's more interesting, you know, if I have to raise a million dollars and a guy comes in with 800,000, he might not get an 80, 20, he might get a 90, a ninety ten 10, because it's a significantly larger investment. So there's, you know, I, you can work with individual investors on different aspects to, uh, you know, if, if they say, listen, I'm not doing a 70, 30 split because I'm giving you, a, a, you know, of all the money, it's like, I want an 85, 15. And then it's a negotiation after that. So every deal is deal by deal specific, but for the most part, that's how the structure works. Right. So
0: just to recap for everyone out there, we went to some pretty uh, nuts and bolts stuff just then. John was saying that the entire deal is split up in terms of, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that the equity in the property is split 80-20 uh, and that the the cash flow from the, the, from the property is split based on a? Is it a preferred return? Is that what you're giving your investors?
1: It, each deal is a little bit different, but for example, my 48 unit in Columbus, I didn't do a preferred return, but I told them on sale I would annualize them back because it's a value add deal, so there's not much, it's, you know, not much return in the first couple of years. So the way that the structure looks is that listen, you're not going to get, I'm not going to give you a preferred return because a preferred return being they get paid before me. There's a lot of heavy lifting, so you know, I don't want to. Not that I don't want to work for free, but as an investor, just like a sponsor, you want to know – if I'm not earning what I deserve, the sponsor might get disinterested and say, you know what? I'm going to go on to the next deal. So what I told my investors in that deal is, listen, I'll give you 10%, but if I give you 7% year one, 9% year two on sale – I'll backfill that. So if we own it for 10 years, you'll make 10% annually. If we own it for three years, you'll make 10% annually for three years. And then anything over that, you know, then, it, then it goes. This so it wasn't a preferred, but uh, it was something a little bit more creative because of the, type of deal that it was. But to answer your question, yeah, there is a preferred, you know, you could do a preferred return where you basically pay the investors X and, you know, all that stuff.
0: Yep. Yep. And just to touch on what you're talking about in terms of waterfall structuring, for all those listeners out there who don't know what waterfall structuring is, it just means that the IRR or the internal rate of return, which is the annualized rate of return when each year is slightly different. It, it, it means that he's hitting a hurdle that John's hitting a hurdle so if say the property is operating at 14% or let's say let's say it's at 12% when you buy it and John goes in there and does a great job and he increases the IRR to 15% then at that point the equity split or the, the split between you know not 80 20 might go 70 30 or 60 40 because everyone's doing better you're not losing any money it's just that the property is performing better and because John is doing such a good job at making the property perform even better than what had been anticipated you know he, he needs to get rewarded. everyone should get rewarded for that so that's where the, the structure changes and i just wanted to clarify on that just a little bit so <laughs> john moving forward what are you doing to refine your syndication business and grow as a real estate entrepreneur in the united states
1: what i'm doing I'm, I'm looking for in the beginning you you scratch and claw to get it done it's like anything else you know it's not easy but it gets easier you know, over time. And that's just because the relationships you build. uh, It's never an easy job. But what what I'm doing is I'm getting a little bit more strict on who I take as an investor for the simple fact that, no offense to the smaller investors, and that could be, you know, I I have people in my deal with $5,000. And then, I have larger investors that, you know, my one deal in South Carolina, it's one investor for $3.2 million. So I've taken the full gamut of investors into deals. Uh, I'm getting a little bit stricter just because not not that I don't like the smaller guys. I do, and I don't mind working with them in a certain percentage of the deal. But when it comes time to preparing financials at the end of the year, my accountant, my accountant does it all, just making life easier. And that's the whole purpose of getting into the bigger deals anyway. Uh, I'm just trying to simplify the business aspect of it. So the back office is a little bit easier as opposed to, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of stuff hanging out there and and I'll work with anyone for the right, you know, listen, if there's some guy that says, listen, I have five grand, but you know, I'm coming into some money or even if they're not, I'll allocate a small percentage of my deals towards certain types of investors, but I'm definitely to make my life easier, to make the deals run smoother. I'm trying to gear up towards, you know, a, a larger minimum investment as well as uh better you know the the next couple things for me would be you know I'm probably going to look to bring on a full-time property manager to manage you know oversee all the managers in my on my properties as opposed to me overseeing everybody overseeing the investors uh you know def- de- definitely delegate a little bit more bring on the right team members to make life a little bit easier and uh focusing on given I don't know where the market's going you know, with interest rates and all that good stuff, we we've changed our scope of the type of deals that we're looking for. That I think fit a little bit more of you know with the potential and where the market's going and stuff like that, and where the interest rates are going. Uh, we we've turned our focus to a little bit of a different type of deal than we did when we first started.
0: Interesting. What, and just briefly, what 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 type of deals are you now focusing on?
1: So instead of when I first started, you know, I wanted the dirty, hairy, you know, (laughs) vacant building that is completely destroyed uh, where I did a short-term bridge loan, you know, those are fun and they make a lot of money, but there's also a lot of risk with them. So what we've, we've geared up towards to the two wheels that I'm spinning now on the deal finding side are more of a deal that needs an amenity upgrade or the management's bad, not necessarily, you know, if it's a 200 unit building, 180 down units, like I'll still look at that and if it's absolutely black and white, yeah, I would think about it. But for the most part, we want to do modest exterior landscaping management. You know, we want to look for those type of deals where it's still heavy lifting and it could take time to get all the bad tenants out, but it's not as bad as, you know, a completely vacant building where you're going to have to come up with a lot more cash and all that stuff. And the other thing, smaller deals, not necessarily 200, you know, 150 units or more. We're looking, you know, the other thing that I'm spinning is a smaller deal in a significantly better market. So, looking for that 50 unit in LA or the 50 unit in New York, something that's a little bit, I'm not going to say recession proof, but you're going to get a higher quality and a more, uh, uh, a a higher average rent on a better property in a better location than if you were to get a 200 unit in, you know, five miles outside of Greenville, South Carolina. Where the average rent's going to be eight hundred bucks, seven you know seven hundred bucks, something that's a little bit smaller, but the average rent is you know closer to the thousand dollars and higher. Let's say so. Those are the two things. Given where I think interest rates are going, inevitably, where I'm trying to steer more of my money towards, um, because I think that longer term they they support that a lot better. And anytime I can lock in long debt, like you know a ten year fanny deal, I'm going to do it to you know to protect myself for interest rate hikes.
0: Good stuff, mate. So. But just to... Summarize that for everyone listening out there. It's John's focusing now more on a higher class of asset, right? You know, you're focusing yes. on maybe a, a, a C minus, bringing it to a C plus. But now it sounds like you're going to focus more on the the Bs and maybe potentially A minuses. Because if LA and New York, that's some that's some pretty tier one cities. You know, you and I have to talk a little bit offline about the type of deals that I'm looking at right now. But I'm sure we'll do something in the future.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, no, for, for sure. But yeah, you're right on where I was looking at the C minus. You know, turning C plus. Now I'm really looking. You know, I'm trying to keep it closer to the C plus B. And then, and as you said, you know, those deals in in the the LAs, the New Yorks, the the Jersey cities. Those markets are definitely you know looking at some you know A minus stuff. Not not crazy new construction because they don't like new construction, mm-hmm. but definitely a, a higher quality of deal. Right. Got it. Got it, got it.
0: So John, with all your experience using syndication to help build your business, I know you're primed to give me your top five investing tips. You ready to get into it?
1: Yeah, let's do it.
0: Most successful habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals.
1: I would say, and this is, uh, I guess it's a little cliche, but finding someone to keep you accountable and writing it down and revo- reviewing your goals, if not on a daily basis, on a weekly basis. you know, Make sure you have your goals written where you can see them. And before I go to bed every night, I, I say, okay, this is what I have to do to get to this goal. And review your goals because if it's six months in and, and you realize it's not possible, change it. Because if, if you set goals that are too high and you can never accomplish it, you, you get into that defeatist mentality and it's I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to do this. And and that's almost worse than changing your goals. So you want to set goals that are achievable and keep reviewing them and, and find somebody to hold you accountable because I think that's the biggest thing. It's very easy in this business to just push something off to the side, push something off to the side. So if you can find someone to hold you accountable and keep you honest, I think that you know there's nothing better than that. Love, so love. reviewing your goals and finding someone accountable.
0: That's fantastic. I definitely – Yes. Having an accountability partner is very, very important. Not just, it doesn't have to be in real estate. It just has to be someone who's going to keep you accountable exactly. to keep you on track and track towards those goals. So great exactly. stuff, man. Uh, the most influential tool you use in your real estate business and why?
1: I, I would say there's no one tool that I use that is better than any other, but I say the one thing that I use always education, just always be learning and always be looking out, you know, keep, the research side of it is so important. You want to make sure that you're always learning. So even that's buying a book, you know, I read a ton of books that it's redundant, you know, it's it's the same thing over and over again, but you want this business to be second nature to you. And if, and if you can read a book that talks about why multifamily investing and it becomes second nature, uh, you want to become an expert as fast as you can. And they say that's 10,000 hours. So, you know, I would say education is something that is critical. So I would say that that's probably uh, the tool that you can never get enough of.
0: We're all about on this show about increasing your financial IQ and, you know, to do that, you need to learn uh, and that's through education. So hopefully a lot of people are getting a lot of cracking information out of this show and a lot of education increasing that financial IQ because that's why you're listening. (laughs) So, John, the most exciting project you're working on right now.
1: Okay, so the most exciting project right now being that I just got good news on my 200 unit in uh, Greenville – that was my most exciting project because it was my largest deal. It was a $10 million deal. It would have been the largest uh, deal to date, but something I'm a little bit more, you know, I'm proud of that because of the work that went into it, the size of the deal, but something that's going to be a little bit more fun. Cause there's a lot of challenges to it. Is an 80 unit deal down in Charleston, we're in contract to close by March, but it's a fractured condo. So we're actually buying 72 out of the 80 units. So, the challenges are on the financing side getting the right type of lending that will allow us to go after those eight additional units to remove the h o a component and turn it into a multifamily complex so that's probably what I'm looking most you know looking forward to because one, it's in a great market in charleston two uh, there's a lot of moving parts, and three it's not a cookie cutter deal it's definitely got some hair on it but I'm looking forward to uh, the challenges that, that are going to come with that deal.
0: Fantastic. Uh, let me know how that goes. You said 80 units, right? Yes. Great, 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 great. I'd love to keep, keep me in the loop on that. You can put me on your in email list if you want. <laughs> you got it. Mate, most influential person in your career? I think you might have already mentioned them. I don't know. Maybe you haven't.
1: Yeah. No, I would say there's a two-part question. One, my mentor, uh, Chris Urso has been absolutely vital. Uh, his wife, him, his team, they've – I was a commercial broker mm-hmm. and, and I've invested in real estate. But with, without them, they, they gave me the push that I needed to say, okay, you know what? It's time to do this. Invest in yourself and make it happen. Um, without them, there's no shot. I, I've gotten 451 units under management, a value of $22.8 million. Um, it, it doesn't happen without Chris Urso, Lisa Urso, his wife, and his whole team, uh, you know, Josh Eidingon, those guys, that's on the mentor side. And then the biggest push in my career is probably my grandfather. Um, without him, you know, he, he came from, you know, not speaking English growing up in Brooklyn to showing me, you know, what I have to do. To, to, to succeed more or less and without him and, and trying and, and just having a conversation with him on an everyday basis, uh, you know, on what I've been working on and, and the motivation that he gave me to, to do what I want to do. Uh, I would say as far as a mentor uh, on a personal level, he's probably been the most influential person I've ever met.
0: Fantastic. That's, that's, that's great stuff, mate. Chris, if you're listening, you are John's, one of John's very influential mentors. And what was your grandfather's name? His name is Sal. Sal, I love it. (laughs) I love it. And John, the last question is where can people reach you to to continue the conversation?
1: Three ways to reach me email uh, is the best because that I have access to 24 7. And and generally, if someone shoots me an email, they will have an answer back within 24 to 48 hours. uh, And I'll be able to schedule something. My schedule is flexible. So, email is great. My email address is John, J O H N C, like Cat. At JC Property Group Inc. com and I'm sure Reed you could you could blast it out to anybody that uh, needs that. And then uh, my office line, i I would give my cell phone out, but when I'm in my office, generally my cell phones it's oh, it's away because uh, I like to stay focused. So my office number is 516-268-3500, extension 101. And then if I don't answer that and I get a voicemail, I I generally call back right away, um, and I have that forwarded to my cell phone when I'm not in the office. So the office line uh, is the best. And then uh, I have a website. My website is jcpropertygroupinc.com. It's going through a rebranding right now. It's still up where you could see it, but it's completely different. I actually just had a conversation last night with the guy to fix it and it's starting to look really nice and that rebranding should be done probably within the next 15 to 20 days
0: fantastic that's great stuff mate Uh and you're constantly working on your personal brand i love you always get to the point where you need to upgrade the website but that's uh, great stuff well, listeners, you have, John, you've given us some great insider information into how to being a successful real estate entrepreneur while using syndication to scale your business pretty much from growing from very little to now worth over $10 million in just two years. Great stuff, mate. Big pat on the back. You know, we went through some some incredible stuff about how to grow your investor pool, how to find your different deals through brokers and, and, and different type of uh, investment approach by direct mailing. I love the wine and cheese event. I'm definitely going to take that on. And we also talked a little bit about how you structure your deals and what you're doing moving forward in terms of improving the type of class deal you're buying. So thanks, mate, for dropping by and chatting with us. Have a great rest of your week and we'll catch up soon.
1: Awesome, buddy. Sounds good. I appreciate you having me on and we'll definitely catch up and let's uh, keep rocking and rolling in 2016.
0: Perfect, mate. Well, there you have it. A great insight into how to use syndication to scale your business. There's a ton to learn about real estate syndication. And in part three, next week, we'll be interviewing a real estate syndication lawyer who'll be explaining more in depth about the legal guidelines and requirements for both investors and syndicators must adhere to. And so stay tuned for another cracking edition. If you're an investor interested in learning more about syndication and how you scale your business, I'm sure John will be only more too happy than answer a few questions offline. Now, make sure you check out all the show notes for a summary of today's conversation with John and any links we mentioned on today's show. A summary of our conversation always goes up on my website at rsmpropertygroup.com. Just remember to click on the podcast tab. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day to tune in and continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge. And that is what we're all about here on the show, to continue to grow your financial IQ. To continue the conversation with me, follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching my name, either Reed Goosens or RSM Property Group. And remember to leave a five star iTunes review below, as we really would appreciate it, as it helps us grow our community of international listeners eager to invest in the US. So until next week, take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing.